1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Anthropology podcast, which is a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'm the host of the channel today. So I'm excited. Today we're going to be talking to Jack Glazer, who's a professor emeritus at Oberlin College, and who's the author of Anthropology and Radical Humanism, Native and African-American Narratives and the Myth of Race. Uh, so I'm interested in this book and its role in the history of anthropology. There's lots of different parts to it, but I'm interested in it because it's uh, one of the first books that's been written on Paul Radin. Um, at the same time, this is not your first book. You've, you've been uh, writing and researching for quite a while. So can you tell me how it is that you came to write this book?
0: Certainly, Alex, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, this book, uh, its uh, roots go back uh, probably to about uh, – 2001, 2002, at that point, I was uh, beginning to conduct research in uh, the black segment of a community, of a, a city and county in western Kentucky, and uh, it was kind of an ethno-history. Uh, I was interested in contemporary life among African Americans, but uh, my view has always been that any question in anthropology about Culture and contemporary world has to have a historical perspective. And so, in connection with that uh, research, which focused on uh, the bifurcation of white and black memory, uh, of course, I got very deeply involved in African American history, uh, the history of Western Kentucky. And uh, I came upon something that I had been aware of, certainly the WPA slave narratives. Uh, this These were commissioned by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. Uh, they occurred with a, a variety of interviewers, I think in 17 states, thousands of interviews, uh, very mixed on the experience of people who had uh, lived through slavery and uh, had survived into the 1930s. And in looking into those narratives, then I became aware of Paul Radin who had spent some time at Fisk University and uh, was little written about. Uh, A few uh, sources uh, noted him as well as his uh, research assistant, I would call him also a collaborator, Andrew Polk uh, Watson, uh, which then led me uh, to these uh, interviews uh, that, uh, that they did between 1927 and 1930. Uh, they were uh, published by Fisk University in 1945 without authorship. Uh, Radin's name, Watson's name do not uh, uh, appear as authors. Um, so it took some years between the collection of those narratives and their publication in, uh, by Fisk University. Uh, and then I think they were very submerged. And then in 1968, uh, they were republished by a, a Christian publisher, uh, and uh, I certainly became, uh, became aware of uh, of that publication. And then as I looked more into uh, Radin's work, I happened upon uh, an unpublished manuscript on his Fisk research, and that lay in the Fisk, sorry, the Marquette University Archives. And so in getting a copy of that unpublished manuscript, uh, I decided I would I would try to get it published, and I knew it was an uphill struggle because many of the narratives were in there, and as I said, had previously been published by Fisk. And in addition, uh, there were three chapters missing. Uh, so I tried to interest a few publishers in it, and uh, without surprise, they said, no, they didn't want uh, to take advantage of my <laughs> willingness to uh, get that particular unpublished book published. And it was a mess. It required a tremendous amount of editing. And I did write a very lengthy uh, introduction to what I thought might be uh, uh, the publication of that volume. Uh, But as I said, it didn't work. And so that introduction really became the core of the book that you uh, have before you. I thought it was certainly worth looking at and also going to Fisk University uh, to see what might be available regarding Raiden. He was a person who didn't leave very distinct footprints about his past. And uh, there was there were a few things there that were very useful that had not been published. And so that's essentially uh, the origin of the book, an extension of my interest in uh, an African-American community uh, in, in Western Kentucky, which was endlessly fascinating.
1: I imagine that a lot of people will know of Fisk, which is famous, uh, you know, as a historically black uh, college and college or university. I guess it must be a university. Yeah. I'm so used to saying HBCU. Right. Um, uh, but, but uh, and we should definitely talk about that. I, I love the fact that um, in addition to Andrew Polk-Waltz, there was another researcher there whose name was Ophelia Settle Egypt, which That's I think right. is just a <laughs> wonderful name. And Amazing. Easy to
0: remember. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But, um, but, but Raiden, on the other hand, I think um, people will not have heard of him. People might just know him as, as uh, one of the first students of, of Franz Boas. As you say, he left light footprints. Can you tell us just a little bit more about his biography and who he was and how he got to Fisk?
0: Certainly. Uh, Raiden was, as I say, somewhere a kind of problematic figure in the uh, <clears throat> Boasian pantheon, so to speak. He was part of that first generation. Prober, Lowy, Sapir, Raiden. Um, <clears throat> he was uh, a difficult person. Uh, his relationship with uh, other Boazians and Boaz in particular was very, very fraught. Uh, Raiden had a succession of academic appointments, at least seven of them, over the course of his uh, over the course of his life. Uh, never having gotten tenure in any of them until finally uh, he got a chair as well as appointment to the the, uh, chairmanship of the anthropology department at Brandeis, where of course he and Stanley Diamond became uh, very, very well acquainted. Radin had almost nothing but contempt for academic administration. He thought, people in the academic world had very narrow minds. And he was cultivating a kind of professional and personal alienation. And so uh, he had problems uh, meeting his obligations, even, even classes he would, frequently, he would frequently miss. And as I noted, even at, at Berkeley in the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s, there were a few people still talking about Raiden. Uh, not meeting his classes. Uh, And so uh, I think part of the problem with his uh, reputation is moving around as he did, very peripatetic. Uh, He taught at Berkeley off and on. He was at Kenyon, at Black Mountain, at Michigan, uh, Chicago, uh, briefly. With that kind of a professional history, he didn't develop a coterie of uh, devoted students. Now he had devoted students here and there, but uh, not a real uh, a real self-conscious uh, solidarity group of people who were carrying Raiden's torch and I think that's one of the reasons uh, that we know we know so little about him. Uh, it's also a case that he was pretty uh, lackadaisical about depositing his uh, professional papers and as uh, you've read in the, uh, early in the book, uh, much of what I use and indeed that unpublished manuscript I mentioned came into the archives at Marquette purely by, uh, by luck, by good fortune. Um, I can say a bit more uh, about how that happened, if you'd like, uh, but uh, it was quite a miracle that a lot of these papers actually did, uh, did survive. You know, you say that he was difficult,
1: and he was lackadaisical. I mean, uh, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about his his personality in particular. Was he an? Did you get a sense that he was an angry person, or was he just, um, you know, sort of careless? Or, I mean, I, I think, think yeah. Sorry, he, I, he, I, he, I, he, seems, he seems like such a successful academic in terms of his ability to write and do research. You know what what I guess what what if you could take us under what was his personality
0: like in more detail I think uh from recollections of uh, students who left some documents as well as uh, his cousins whom he met in in Paris I take it he was a very very charming guy uh, a great raconteur he loved he loved company I think he he liked performance he liked to be the center the center stage uh, a cousin of his a young woman in her 20s uh, with another cousin came to Paris in the 20s when Raiden and mrs Raiden Doris Doris Raiden were there Raiden met them at the station delighted to see them and insisted that they stay uh, with the Raidens and not in the hotel uh, and of course Raiden borrowed money from them I think his aim was to get the uh, <laughs> The, the the hotel costs uh, given to him rather than to the hotel because he was he was often improvident uh, he, he was constantly uh, in need of money he was on welfare for a while in Berkeley but this cousin's reflections talk about how uh, enjoyable he was he took them to the parties on the left bank she suspects that one of the parties maybe Picasso or Hemingway <laughs> was there this is circa 1924. Or, uh, or or 25. Uh, so kind of, I called him an improvident bon vivant. Uh, constantly in need of money. Now, he's not the kind of person you'd want to loan money to, and you certainly wouldn't want him as a house guest. And uh, I think part of his, his difficult personality was just a desire, a uh, kind of professional alienation uh, from the academic world and from uh, civilization, so to speak, quote unquote, uh, thinking that that would uh, that would free him up, that would free up any kind of biases he might have so that he could look uh, with uh, kind of unclouded lenses uh, at the world he wanted uh, he wanted to examine. Uh, he might have had the notion, and this is pure speculation uh, that, uh, That the ones who were without bias in research would have been the the pure intellectuals. I think this is a uh, an idea floated by uh, Karl Mannheim in a book called *Ideology and Utopia*. *Ideology and Utopia*, which is uh, one of the early documents in the sociology of knowledge. And Mannheim thought that uh, everybody's uh, worldview perspective was conditioned by their position in the social structure, but that those those who might be uh, above that were the intellectuals. And uh, I think all of us know that uh, that was a, a, a wonderful but utterly naive notion. Uh, and I think Raiden perhaps, though he doesn't mention Mannheim, uh, might very well have been thinking much the same thing. And he has this um, belief in his own works that
1: the people whose stories he records are, are themselves intellectuals. He didn't, he didn't see intellectuals as someone who was uh, sort of highly literate, and uh, went to the symphony and had all the trappings of civilization. He, he spent his um, early career doing work in Native American communities. Isn't that right? And, and, and he saw the people he was interviewing as, as, as a, a kind of intellectual. He saw intellectuals as existing in every society.
0: Exactly. This is uh, the import of one of his, uh, perhaps his most important book, Primitive Man as philosopher. Which argues that, uh, first of all, people in every society are individuated, uh, unlike a lot of thought at the time that this uh, machine called culture is basically stamping out people as uh, almost uh, carbon copies of each other. He absolutely opposed that. Individuation is characteristic of every society. Moreover, uh, every society has uh, its thinkers as opposed to men of action. They're a minority everywhere, but they are uh, no less important in so-called primitive society than among uh, complex uh, civilizational societies. And I might say, um, <clears throat> for Raiden and the, uh, the rest of the Boasians, they got in trouble, I think, unnecessarily by the persistence of the use of that term, primitive. And uh, Leslie White, in uh, some publications right after World War II, I think in probably in the AA and maybe in the newly founded Southwest Journal, uh, I believe there, at any rate, taking the Boasians to test, saying, well, you guys never really did give up on 19th century evolution. Look at the word primitive as it... Uh, punctuates all of your prose in your various books and articles. And I think uh, it's caused uh, kind of a continuing embarrassment. But I would like to say that I I think for Radin and the others, that no one in their view is really primitive. What they are referring to is the nature of the social order that people are primitive if they're living in primitive societies. And for Raiden, it's a little differentiation, uh, not a great deal of technological uh, development. Uh, these are the characteristics of a primitive society, but people themselves are not primitive. It may be an unsatisfactory resolution. I wish they hadn't used the term, but they're uh, there you have it. We're, we're, we're stuck with it. But I, Raiden especially, uh, would have resisted the idea that certain people are primitive by, by nature, by intellect, and so on. And of course, he has this great opposition to Lucien Levy bruhl who argued that people in so called primitive societies are thinking differently. Uh, so Raiden had enormous respect for the people he worked with they were his in many respects his intellectual equals they were his coevals they were contemporaries they weren't people who represented an arrested stage of uh, evolutionary development were were mere survivals nothing of the sort uh, in his view
1: yeah i think it's um that term really grates on the ear today That's and, other, yes yes and it's it's a little I, I think there would be many people out there who wouldn't be convinced by that distinction you know of sophisticated versus unsophisticated people mentally versus you know um, complex versus undifferentiated societies uh, you know I, I think I think there'd be many many people out there who would say that the term primitive uh, the fact that they use that term shows that th- those two distinctions cannot be as easily separated as you might think and Obviously, the irony of writing books with names like, you know, um, the primitive man as philosopher or the mind of primitive man to show that those people were not primitive. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I think that's a difficult one for many people to to accept.
0: I, I understand that. Uh, I think if you read Raiden carefully, uh, with, that is really the basis for what I am uh, trying to trying to say here. But uh, yours is a point well taken. It uh, it is a tough. Term, it's uh, part of the legacy of anthropology that hasn't done us any good.
1: I also wonder, you know, if you think about someone like Boaz, who was so um, committed to a concept of Bildung, uh, which is a German word which means self cultivation, um, I, I wonder whether he and many of the other anthropologists of his era w- wouldn't have looked down on the expressive production of indigenous people as as being uncivilized compared to, you know, the glories of Mendelssohn or Brahms or something like that. One of the, one of the key things that I often think about for thinkers of this period is, is what is their relationship with jazz? Often people who uh, come from these sort of almost literati backgrounds recognize the value of jazz while you look at as, as a, at jazz as a, a lively art um, or a sophisticated uh, and yet popular art. Whereas you look at someone like Sapir, you know, he loved Debussy, and he, he didn't love Gershwin. I I wonder whether there's a bit more of a distaste for, uh, you know, so-called primitive art and culture amongst some Boasians than we might be willing to admit.
0: Well, I think uh, maybe the burden on uh, people who would make that claim would be to give this chapter and verse. Uh, I'm not sure I could buy that by any means. Uh, certainly when you look at Boas's uh Reception of Zora Neale Hurston's work. Uh, I think he recognized the importance of what she was doing and the the full humanity of the people that she uh, that she was dealing with. Uh, he was he he was utterly supportive of uh, of everything she did uh, with uh, uh, the, the, the African American communities in Florida that she was uh, that she uh, that she where she was collecting her her folklore
1: yeah it's interesting you have a little bit in this book uh uh and when we start talking now about african american communities and and start moving to fisk, you have this quote in the book, I believe, which I had never seen before from Boaz, where he said that that Hurston was so artistic she had to be held down, yes, you know that he was so um opposed to her more literary endeavors he wanted her to produce you know um sort of straightforward transcriptions of folklore that he was getting from, uh, other people. Uh, I was, I was quite struck by that. I mean, I think many of us would feel like the best part of Hurston was precisely the, the, the version that Boaz didn't want to see.
0: Well, I think he would have said that, uh, about any, any student. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't read anything more into it than that. I mean, it's easy to, uh, I mean, to, to racialize a lot of the, the criticisms, but uh, he was so much the scientist that uh, he was in effect trying to trying to control her, but he couldn't. But he, he would have said the same thing to any student who was venturing away from his rather strict notion of what constituted uh, fieldwork. But he couldn't hold her down. But what's most important is he supported her in 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 extremely generous ways, not uncritically but he's definitely supported her work. And as uh, uh, Hurston's biographer, one of them says, Hemingway, Boaz recognized her genius immediately. And I think uh, between the two, there was a good deal of respect and and affection.
1: And, yeah. And I think that that point about Boaz's very circumscribed sense of what counted as anthropology is a good one. And it's, it's something that not only Hurston struggled against, but in the correspondence of uh, Sapir and Krober and uh, Mint Lowy and many other people, they often feel like they would like to wander a bit from the, the very narrow strictures that, that, that um, Boaz placed on them. So I don't think it was, it was just his female students or just his students of
0: color who felt that constrained by some of that. Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, uh, I guess on their own time, uh, Benedict was writing poetry before she became an anthropologist, I believe, and, and Sapir as well. Uh, So there's, uh, I just, just so far, uh, uh, the Germanic control can be exercised. But uh, I think uh, Boaz was very much equal opportunity in the demands that he made on all of his students.
1: Yes. And, you know, as a, as an anthropologist, I'm very familiar with him as a, a successful academic entrepreneur, but as, as someone who's less familiar with sort of the history of Fisk and um, African-American studies, uh, I was really interested to read about Charles Johnson, who was the academic entrepreneur who was behind bringing uh, Radin uh, to Fisk. He sounds like an amazing person. Could you tell us a little bit about him?
0: Yes, certainly. Uh, there is a biography uh, of at least one of uh, Charles Johnson. Um He had an interesting background. He was Southern by birth from Virginia, educated uh, in the South, very much uh, an African-American of the time who had an intellectual who had his finger on the political and social pulse of the American South. Uh, He is, in some articles, contrasted with Du Bois. They saw the world in very, very different ways, especially when it came to gaining uh support from white philanthropies. Uh Johnson uh didn't make any uh, exceptions. He would try to get money where he could. Du Bois was much more um guarded. He was worried that white philanthropies might close down on uh anything that smacked of radical activity uh, among um uh the black black people that he that he funded. Uh Johnson uh, was born in the early 1890s. He uh, spent some time at the University of Chicago. He was in, uh, in World War I, uh, came back, uh, got a position with the Urban League uh, in Chicago. And we might say that in all of this, Robert Park, the sociologist, is an extremely important figure in, in the sort of intellectual history of the social sciences. Uh, in being really a patron of numbers of gifted Black uh, would-be sociologists, from Johnson to uh, um, Sinclair, sorry, yeah, well, Sinclair Drake even, who became an anthropologist. Uh, uh, Park was extremely helpful, uh, as well as uh, Johnson. And uh, the position with the Urban League was gotten partly through uh, Park's uh, influence uh, and in the uh, dreadful riot of 1919, with you know many black soldiers coming back saying, now it's going to be different. We were real willing to give our lives for our country, but it wasn't different. And riots broke out across this country. And one of the worst was in Chicago. Uh, Johnson wrote a, an enormous compendium, a book on, on the, the riots and the state of uh, black Chicago, uh, it wasn't authored. Uh, there were a few people uh, adding their two cents, so to speak, to the text, And there are certain things that Johnson could not have mm-hmm. written, like the responsibility of black people to be uh, not to be indolent and to be to work hard and all of this sort of racist uh, racist stuff. But on the whole, uh, in in measured language, He identified the basic problems in that Chicago riot, and it wasn't the Negro problem, it was the white problem, and he he didn't term it that, but uh, he was very clear from discrimination in housing uh, and and labor, unions, hard and impossible, uh, impossibility of getting good jobs and so forth. Uh, At any rate, uh, from uh, Chicago and the Urban League, he went to New York and uh, got a position as editor of Opportunity, which is a wonderful, wonderful journal, uh, in which uh, he promoted black writing. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes both agreed that Charles Johnson was probably the father of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, sponsoring writing contests, uh, and he had a good deal of a good deal to say in Opportunity about uh, so-called. Efforts to prove the inferiority of black people, and how this was uh, occurring at Harvard and at Princeton and some of our most uh, notable notable institutions. So it's quite forthright uh, in 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 arguing for uh, for black equality. Uh, Johnson then goes to uh, Fisk University in I believe 1928 and starts the or builds up the social science program. Eventually, he became. Uh, the first black president of Fisk in the late '40s, a position he held until his death, I believe, in 1956. Uh, but when he was there, actually, Raden uh, got to Fisk before Johnson. Raden was there in 1927, uh, hired or paid for by the uh, Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial for for uh, at least three years, and then Johnson and then Johnson arrived and started building up the social science program uh, with uh, a very interesting uh, multiracial group of, uh, of scholars. You know, Ruth Landis and uh, you know many others, Hortense Powdermaker was there for uh, for a while. Uh, I can't think of an, uh, the, the other name. It slipped off my mind. Uh, but it was a, a, a very dynamic group. And Charles Johnson himself uh, was an active sociologist and wrote a very, very important book called Shadow of the Plantation uh, about the uh, essentially the legacy of sharecropping and uh, Black exploitation in the, the rural areas uh, after slavery. You know,
1: um, I think many people might not be familiar with Ruth Landes, And to the extent they're familiar with Hortense Powdermaker, I think it's because she she's another person with an incredible name. Yes, but, um, yeah. but, uh, uh, Landis was another Boasian and, uh, like Raiden, she originally started doing work in, um, North America. And, uh, I believe Powdermaker was, uh, was an American who ended up going abroad to, um, to England before returning back. I believe she was at Yale at some point associated with Sapir when he was there. So there was, uh, there was a, there was a fair interaction at Fisk then between anthropologists, and um, and uh, Charles Johnson and Ophelia Settle Egypt, Andrew Polk Watson, and these other people.
0: Certainly true. And uh, of course, in those years, the place that was most notable for the study of race relations was uh, the University of Chicago. Uh, and Fisk, unfortunately, is overshadowed, and it shouldn't be. That was one of the great places for studying uh, race relations.
1: And I will just to add some more genealogy there, you know, uh, Park, uh, his, I believe his grandson was Robert Redfield, who helped support uh, people like Catherine Dunham and and Allison Davis when they were at the University of Chicago. So it seems like um, there's a lot of interactions there. And uh, some of those stories may be less familiar to some people.
0: I think I might be wrong. We'll have to check this off air, but I think Redfield was... Uh, close, closer, uh, the next generation rather than the grandchild. I think, actually, he might have been Park's son-in-law. Yeah, uh, I
1: think that's right. He married Park's daughter.
0: That's right. And uh, there are some other interesting connections. Um, um, I think that Oscar Lewis might have married the daughter of Robert Redfield. <laughs> um, Maybe I have that wrong. There's, there's some kind of kinship connection, I believe, between Redfield and, uh, and Lewis.
1: Well, um, you know, Radcliffe Brown spent some time at Chicago and one of his great students was W. Lloyd Warner, who was very supportive of, um, many of these scholars, in- including Alison Davis, uh, Sinclair Drake, some of these other people that you've mentioned.
0: Definitely, Sinclair, I should yeah. say, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. And of course he was, uh, uh Alison, uh, Allison Davis, uh, like, uh, Hortense Powdermaker, uh, Anthropologists of the time, but not directly Boasians. Uh, I know. I, I believe that uh, Powdermaker got her degree at the London School of Economics. She had studied, uh, actually, with Malinowski, and I guess Alison Davis probably as well. Uh, so they were they were kind of social anthropologists uh, more than kind of the American cultural variety.
1: Yeah, I think you know you mentioned Johnson's work as a sociologist. I suppose in some sense, for many of these people. The similarity between anthropology and sociology—that social, anth- social anthropological vision—must have had good fit. Although at the same time, you know, Raiden's focus on collecting oral history definitely worked well with uh, with the project at Fisk.
0: Unquestionably, that was the case. Um, I think what Raiden was engaged in at Fisk was was essentially providing documents that humanized African Americans in a world in which <laughs> they were seen as, 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 something, as something very different. You know, in the middle 1930s, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote Black Reconstruction. And in the preface to that book, he talks of the possible audiences for the book. And he said one part of the audience will be those who essentially come at this with an open mind, will look at my arguments, adduce the evidence that I bring to bear, and make their own conclusions. The other segment, and I don't know if he gives percentages, but from what we know, it was very high, of people uh, 70 years, so approximately uh, 75 years after uh, the Civil War, who questioned emancipation, <laughs> who who still saw black people in natural terms as a kind of savage remnant of Africa. And he said, no amount of argumentation on my part is going to change their mind at all. And uh, that book is really uh, part, I think, of a whole movement from Carter Woodson forward to Rewrite Black history, as I said, that Woodson and his uh, his colleagues were really uh, declaring a kind of independence from the American history profession. Um, the dominant figures of the time in history, uh, U. B. Phillips and uh, William Dunning, uh, the whole Dunning school, which comes out of Columbia. Dunning was a southerner, descendant of slaveholders, a terrible racist giving. And he he became kind of the definitive figure in the interpretation of the Civil War and Reconstruction and the post-Reconstruction era. And he influenced uh, historians across the country. Uh it's very appalling. Even someone like Henry Steele Commager, a Northern historian, buys into the Dunning view of what Reconstruction was like in South Carolina, down to the, the need for white people to reemerge to save the state from the savagery of these people who are the men who are lusting after white women. It's quite extraordinary. And that's, so, a, that's a Northern historian.
1: So the... um oral history project that Raiden and uh, Watson worked on. That was a very different project. Can you tell me a little bit about their field work and what their relationship, I guess Egypt was working slightly before them. What, what, what concretely happened in that research project?
0: Yes. Uh, well, I would say that when, when Raiden arrived, the Ophelia Settle Egypt project was underway with, uh, Fisk students and, uh, herself interviewing, uh people who had lived through slavery the work of watson and raden uh began with his uh, coming to fisk in 1927 and it consisted of the uh the collection of life histories they collected eight of them Radin did two of them watson did did six of them and in Raiden's discussion of those life histories we get a glimpse of him that is carried forward uh, somewhat uncharacteristic very generous very uh, modest about his own his own work and this is a man who was not much given to modesty but of the eight life histories the two that Raiden collected are the most detailed and the most really fully developed uh, the ones that Watson did, six of them, and two of them remain unpublished. Six of them were, uh, you know, much shorter. Uh, the informants were not nearly as uh, as fluent as Raiden's informants. And as I say, at first blush, you would think, okay, here's Radin. Uh, years before, a vast experience among the Winnebago. He published Crashing Thunder, a landmark in anthropology, stimulating others to do a life history work. So you would take it, you would chalk it up to Radin's, uh, Raiden's experience and Watson's relative inexperience. Radin generously said, I happen to be fortunate in, in collecting from these two gentlemen. And if Watson had those men as his informants, his, his uh, life history materials would be as extensive as my own. And likewise, had I interviewed those, whom Watson interviewed, I probably would have come up with equally thin uh, texts. So it's really, it's really quite generous. Uh, the conversion narratives uh, were something of, an, of another matter. Watson collected all of those. Uh, Radin accompanied him on some of the interviews. On others, Watson did it by, uh, by himself. And it's very clear, Radin could not have done this work uh, without, without Watson or uh, an equally gifted uh, student at, at Fisk. Watson is so much the collaborator of this project. Uh, and, you know, Watson essentially was from, Ten- from Middle Tennessee, from Franklin, uh, not too far south of, of Nashville, uh, rather different upbringing, more middle class than a lot of his informants who were part of what he would later call the Primitive Baptist Church, with a lot of shouting and emotional display and so forth. That wasn't Watson's background. But as a, a well-trained and sensitive anthropologist, he was determined to try to understand people's experiences that were not, that were not his own. And so the conversion narratives are exclusively uh, a, a product of, uh, of Watson's uh, very sustained work. And uh, they, are, they are there, they are published, and they are remarkable documents, moving documents of people who, with little resources, apparently created for themselves a, a kind of stability in their lives, something they could hang on to when everything about their lives had been diminished and denigrated. It was really a kind of construction of a sense of self from the materials available. And those materials were largely the product of uh, Baptists and Methodists, white Baptists and white Methodists who originally started preaching among uh, black people, encouraged by slave owners, hoping for compliance rather than resistance. You know, they always had ready access to violence to suppress slaves, but if they could convince people of the righteousness of their own, servitude there wouldn't they would have a much easier time running their plantations. and so what what these slave owners and other whites didn't reckon on is simply the humanity, the human what I call the human creative imagination that what slaves heard was easily transformed with new meanings that suited their own their own situation. There was no way they were going to accept white preaching about the righteousness of their own servitude. They would not accept a God complicit in their own subjugation. And so these narratives are eloquent testimony to, to human creativity and to the very humanity that had been for so long denied slaves and people after slavery, you know, uh, segregated, apartheid Nashville in 1930 was not a very comfortable place.
1: And if people do get a chance to read your book, they'll see that you've reproduced um, many long passages of these narratives, and they are they are remarkable. It's not um, surprising that slavery was a terrible experience, but I think that um, reading words directly from people's mouths describing their experience rather than watching recreations uh, on television or something like this uh, is is a very, very powerful experience, as is the, uh, the narratives that you present of people's um, ecstatic visions of the divine and their spiritual journeys. They're, they are, as, as Radin would say, they're, they're works of art.
0: Unquestionably, a distinctive kind of uh, American literature. And he had absolutely no problem talking about people who could not read or write being authors and producing a literature. And, of course, Boaz also talked about stylistic aspects of American Indian literature, as did Radin. So I think there is an enormous respect that Radin is showing for the people with whom he he dealt. He needed Watson, uh, uh, absolutely. Radin had no experience in the South. He was uh, an immigrant, although he came as a young child, but very, very European. Uh, And you can imagine him in uh, 19... 28, 1930, Nashville. no experience in the South going about with his uh, customary uniform of a three-piece suit, maybe a beret uh, and uh, an odd metropolitan manner. How do you create solidarity with people who are so uh, accustomed to white people taking advantage or uh, accustomed to telling white people what they think white people want to hear? Watson is integral to this uh, to this research. Couldn't have happened without him. You know, you mentioned um, Raiden and
1: Boaz's view on Native American literature. And uh, we do have a chapter on that in the book as well that I, I don't want to gloss over. You compare the text that he gathered at Fisk with his earlier field work. Or a later field work? I'm sorry. I work in Papua New Guinea, yeah. so I have to admit I'm not really an expert on, <laughs> on North America.
0: Yeah, Ho Chunk or Winnebago people? Yes, Ho Chunk. Well, uh, the, 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 he called them the Winnebago, but they're two. They're two tribal groups. Uh, the Winnebago proper are they so designate themselves in Nebraska and the Wisconsin segment where they all originated uh, call themselves the Ho Chunk. And you
1: also have a chapter in there about his um, political situation when he was gathering texts. He was able to gather texts about religious ceremonies from a dissident group who was willing to reveal the secrets of the more orthodox group yes. as part of their struggle to innovate and introduce peyote uh, ritualism into the area.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let us say that uh, ethical standards of the time were different from what they are now. Uh, I wouldn't uh, want to go so far as to say that, uh, let's put it this way, that anthropologists now do not uh, from time to time do things that they'd rather not uh, talk about. Uh, but certainly there is a, a sense of ethical standards within uh, the anthropological community, although uh, anyone who violates them is pretty much free, I think, uh, because there's no mechanism in the AAA. Uh, for uh, adjudicating these, uh, these claims. Uh, but a certainly played on factionalism within the community. He was very much interested in salvage ethnography of reconstructing, uh, Winnebago society. And, uh, he was interested, especially in its most sacred, uh, ritual, the medicine dance. And, uh, no one who was an adept of the medicine dance would, uh, would talk to him, would uh, disclose secrets on pain of death of someone nearby. Uh, but the dissidents, the people who had adopted peyote uh, and condemned much of tradition, were ready informants disclosing all sorts of secrets. And it's not to say that Raiden created factionalism. I don't think so, but he certainly exploited it. There's no question about that.
1: I guess on the one hand, much of your book is uh, dedicated to demonstrating the anti-racist credentials of Boazian anthropology and, and Radin in particular, and, and pointing out the, the fundamentally ethical behavior of Boazian anthropologists at a, at a time when there's been some criticisms of them. At the same time, this uh, chapter on his political situation with these groups that does not Necessarily, I guess, bolster your case.
0: Um, well, I I think I'd like you to rephrase that question. Uh, you know, there's the the, Bo, the Boazians versus uh, versus Raiden. Um, he did play on factionalism, certainly, um, but at the same time, one can say that the uh, peyotis, Took advantage of Raiden. Of Raiden, uh, they were trying to create a new kind of society, uh, something where uh, numinous symbols and feelings would depart from the traditional world. So, in that respect, it's kind of distinctly modern. In the way, you might say they they used each other in some respects. But uh, on the whole, I mean, if you're asking me, were there ethical breaches uh, that uh, Paul Raiden? Uh, was guilty of. I'd say, yeah, sure, there were. There were. But I think at the same time, we need to take a very holistic perspective on Raiden and the Boasians. He paid dearly for his politics and for his support of black labor, of uh, speaking for black civil rights. You could get another entry in your FBI file. In San Francisco, in the 1930s, uh, speaking up for um, the Spanish Republicans, the Spanish in the Spanish Civil War. Another entry for the the, the FBI to to taint you, and uh, there was there was a, a great deal of courage there. You might say it too for Boaz. I mean, people will have to explain this. The Scottsboro Boys. Boaz was willing to sign on to declare these people political prisoners in 1933. And uh, there were people like uh, Howard Odom, the sociologist at North Carolina, who pleaded with him not to do that. But, you know, Odom and other white liberals would go only, only so far. And I don't think, uh, I don't think Boaz was, uh, was very restrained in that respect.
1: And uh, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, your mention of the FBI files was not at all metaphorical. Raiden was hounded by the FBI and uh, spent many years out of the country. I-, I-, I get the feeling that he was basically chased out for his politics and for his anthropology.
0: That was, there were probably push and pull factors. I mean, there is one letter that turned up where uh, Raiden, in a particularly uh, fearful mode, Asks an ethnomusicologist whose parents had a a ranch near Fresno if he went out there, if they would hide him if the FBI came looking for him. So that was, uh, that was a particularly low point. Uh, so there were undoubtedly push factors. The pull factors were he had a pretty good deal going. I mean, uh, would you move to Lugano (laughs) if you had a chance, uh, and to get support from, uh, the Bollingen, uh, uh, Institute, uh, I think he he did, and he was he was safe there, and uh, he had freedom freedom to write uh, and to uh, and to lecture. Uh, one wishes, as a historian of anthropology, that his that he was more careful with his records, because there are whole parts of his uh, his story that are just uh, blank. And one of the most intriguing for me is that he spent time at Cambridge, and actually. Dedicated, uh, crashing thunder to WHR Rivers. Hmm. And I think what, what could their relationship have been? You know, Raiden was deeply interested in psychology. Uh, even though he was, uh, associated with Jung, he didn't have much, he didn't have any sympathy for what, uh, Jung was doing. But Rivers, one of the founders of social anthropology and a, a man Hardly a stranger to psychology, he was a practicing psychiatrist. Uh, one could read the wonderful book uh, *Regeneration*, about his uh, a novel about Rivers' work uh, with with shattered the shattered psyches of British soldiers in uh, in World War One. I'm trying to think of the author now. Uh, Pat Uh, Pat Barker. Pat Barker. Thank you. It's part of a trilogy
1: and some of it is set in Melanesia. So I I do know that part. Very,
0: very good. Yeah, Yeah. it's a fine book. At any rate, one wonders what went on there. And we uh, we just don't know. You know, you mentioned
1: that Raiden was persecuted by the FBI, and, and um, he was not the only one. You know, there are books that have been written. David Price has, has written on this yes, extensively. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you, I wonder, and, he, and you also talk about how he was not able to fit in institutionally. I wonder whether there was a version of anthropology that was born in the 1920s and the 1930s when anthropology that got started in the United States in its sort of modern version um, which could have flourished and would have looked what would, would have been looked upon very kindly by uh, contemporary people who are interested in combining activism with anthropology, but because it was impossible in the 1930s it 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 just never happened.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I guess one could ask the question of what exactly is activism? I mean couldn't one consider what consider uh, the work of Boaz and Radin and others—a really great personal risk—in talking about the fallacy of racial determinism. I mean, that—that that is uh, certainly a, a kind of activism, and Radin, Radin paid for it. Um, but I think, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of criticism, of course, of what Boaz was doing and this focus on biological race. Great deal of criticism you know, focusing on it. And I think, to me, my way of thinking, some of that criticism is very governed by a kind of presentism. And uh, I think what is needed is a recognition of the situation that Boaz faced, of the nature of racial sentiment in this country uh, into the 1930s, that race was destiny to so many people to unravel that, to unpack it, to explode it, was understandably a lifelong, a lifelong effort. You know. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I think if people are interested in learning more about this, your work is a- an excellent place to begin. You have um, not just an account of Radin and uh, and Watson and Fisk, but a much more general overview of. What was happening in this period and how they tie into it so the book is is scoped a, a little bit more broadly than just a narrow focus on one or two scholars i think that's that's one of the strengths of it
0: well thank you and uh <clears throat> one of my naysayers uh, was critical of uh, not having the name paul raden in the title and i thought long and hard about that and uh, i put myself in the shoes of someone Well, going to a bookstore when there were bookstores, or let's say going to Amazon and seeing a book in anthropology with Paul Radin in the title and easily going beyond that. In other words, I I thought it would diminish interest. Uh, uh, And so I I kept him out of the title, even though the book is substantially about him, although I wouldn't call it a biography, Uh, although it's biographical.
1: I should say, I think I've been remiss as an interviewer. That's that's such an interesting point that you've intentionally chosen to to remove his name from the title. I, I think you're right that that does really shape the decision about what the audience and what the subject of the book is. And of course, the title is Anthropology and Radical Humanism. And I feel bad. My first question should have been, "What is radical humanism?" That's the that's the key word that's in there instead of Paul Radin. Can you? Tell me a little bit about
0: that, or perhaps we've already discussed it. No, we haven't, and I'm I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Um, Radical humanism for uh, Paul Raden was um, the notion that the human document is crucial, that he did not want to abstract from the testimony of various people to create a model, let's say, of culture. And uh, his perspective uh, is made very clear in a 1933 book called Method and Theory and Ethnology, in which he, you know, it's amazing these people could still remain friendly, in <laughs> which he takes to task uh, uh, Sapir and Krober and others. Well, Krober and Radin had a, had a fraught relationship. Sapir and uh, Radin were were very good friends. But basically, uh, Radin was very much opposed to the Boasians who were trying to treat cultural data as if it were uh, similar to natural science data of abstracting uh, little bits and pieces here in the interest of uh, recreating some kind of historical picture of the, of the planes of trait distributions, age area, hypotheses, and so forth. He said, you can't, you, you can't do that. It's turning people into, into marionettes uh, and uh, instead uh, a, hu- a humanistic anthropology cannot abstract from the testimony of particular individuals uh, it's much more allied with with literature and, and with history than it is with natural than it is with natural science uh, so he is certainly uh, the radical humanist he doesn't build models he doesn't create generalizations uh, in a ma- in many respects he's a he's a documentarian uh, of making uh, explicit, the actual words of, uh, of 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 people telling their own stories, uh, not editing out. But this is it. This is who they are. Uh, this is what what I I'm referring to as radical humanism. He did it among the the, the Winnebago uh, with life histories, and certainly in uh, in in Nashville. Uh, in Nashville, he found it so important. He, he actually said, "The words of these people are most important." more important than my own. <laughs> and uh, it's a very unusual statement for a man like Raiden. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's an unusual
1: statement for anyone to be able to get out of the way of the people whose stories you're trying to tell and um, let, them, let them tell it themselves. That's, that's quite
0: something. Yep. Absolutely true.
1: Well, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and thank you very much for this interview. So I'm going to let you go. But um, before we do that, can you tell me what you're working on now? Is there going to be more research on this topic?
0: Well, I have, again, another manuscript of Paul Radin's uh, with that uh, problematic title, The Nature of Primitive Religion, never published. uh, And he was working on it, uh, I think, most recently in 1939. And it's published about two years after his other well-known book, Primitive Religion. And uh, <laughs> he doesn't give the reader much uh, much of a hint. He said, uh, anything that is in this book that isn't in primitive religion, well, this is my final word and this is the one you should believe. So I'm looking at that to see if there's anything worth uh, publishing about the change from one book uh, to uh, to the other. Uh, but in the bigger scheme of things, and you're right about the first thing you said, a lot of you know, you know people you talk to, they publish a book and they're not real sure of what's next. Uh, I, can, I can certainly uh, understand that because you, you're sort of in the afterglow uh, of your publication and you don't want to think about much else. Um, but I have been thinking about it because my timing was exquisite. This book came out. When the coronavirus came out, <laughs> and uh, it uh, distracted a lot of a lot of people, but I am thinking uh, of a kind of retrospective view of my three uh, major research field experiences: first in East Africa, uh, secondly in the Midwest among uh, particularly American Jewish immigrants and then thirdly among african americans in western kentucky a kind of retrospective on the value of ethnography you know there there was a time when the ethnographer in anthropology was much more esteemed than the theorist uh, it was just the opposite in sociology and uh, various anthropologists have said like robert murphy whom i admire greatly you know the, the 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 theory comes and goes, but the ethnography is always there, and this is what we should be valuing. Uh, so this is what I'm thinking about. It would be my uh, kind of pay on to uh, to the value of ethnograph of ethnography, and that's for someone who, for many years, taught culture theory. Uh, but uh, I think ethnography is the ultimately the end all and be all of uh, of anthropology.
1: Well, I think that that's a very Raiden-esque sentiment. So yes. I look forward to, uh, to seeing that, that project uh, come to fruition. Uh, Jack, thanks again for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well,
0: Alex, thank you for the good and the tough questions. <laughs> a couple of them. <laughs> it's been nice to be with you.